Let me pray before we look at this passage. God, the passage we have just read feels like it belongs more on HBO or some cable channel than in your word. And yet here it is. For many of us, God, a passage like this is deeply troubling. For some of us, it is triggering of things that have happened to us. For some, it is triggering for things that we have done. For some of us, there's just a numbness and a blankness as we approach a story like this with such violence and injustice. And so, God, we pray that wherever each person, and I pray that wherever we all are this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us the words of hope and life and redemption that are to be found in this story of Judah and Tamar. Be with us, Lord Christ. Send your spirit. For your name's sake we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, you probably are aware that there is a coronation. There's something happening in England in a couple of weeks, a coronation. And in preparation for the coronation of King Charles, uh, we have been catching up on our viewing, my wife and I, of The Crown. Now, if you've watched The Crown at all, it's the story of Queen Elizabeth's reign. And if you watch it, I mean, in this family, in this institution, the royal family, no one seems happy. I mean, it's a family of wealth and of privilege, of blessing and of fame. And every person in the story seems trapped in suffering and shame. Which is to say the crown reminds me of the stories of the patriarchs in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Last week we started a sermon series on Joseph. This is the uh, chapters basically 37 through 50 of Genesis. If you're not familiar, Genesis is the first book in the Christian Bible, the first book in in the Jewish scriptures, Genesis. And basically from now through May, we will be looking at the last quarter of that book, of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50 of Genesis. And they are primarily a story about Joseph. But you may not be familiar with these stories. They're a bit buried here in the back of this book. But these stories are part of an enormous story. And the story, the big story, as it were, this story is part of the early pages of the story that will actually culminate in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And we study passages like this as off-putting as they are at first glance uh, because they're in God's Word and they're deeply moving. I challenge you to find a short story that contains this much in this much time uh, than Genesis chapter 38. It is enormously moving simply as a piece of literature. But we also study stories like this because every story in God's Word, every story, whispers the name of Jesus. Every story in God's word points forward to and whispers the name of Jesus. And I want us to see that this morning. But this story, honestly, it feels odd for its violence. And it's also a weird interpretation. I've told you this is the story of Joseph. And if you're listening carefully, you didn't hear Joseph's name. He's not in this story. Okay, there's no mention of him. Now, one level, this story is an age-old cliche. A man goes away on a business trip, has a dalliance that ends up coming to light. But there is so much more as there always is. There's dysfunctional family, there is death, there's a sex scandal, there is blame shifting, there's even incest, prostitution, there's even a paternity test. I mean, this sounds more like the Me Too movement than the Bible. 
And I want the, one thing about this story is this again, we saw this last week, but this story, it crushes, it demolishes moralistic readings of the Bible. If you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're investigating, we're so glad you're here. And if you're here and you're that person and the hypocrisy and moralism and self-righteousness of Christians drives you crazy, this story's for you. This, story, this is our holy text. This is our holy text. And even if you're a follower of Jesus and the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of Christians drives you mad, read this story. But the real question is, if Joseph's not in this story, uh, and this is the section of the book of Genesis about Joseph, why is this story included at all? Why is this story included in the biblical record? I mean, it could have been easily been left off. There's no mention of Joseph. And it also seems to undermine everything that we often think the Bible stands for, biblical religion. Well, this story does have something to do with Joseph, which we'll see in weeks to come. But this story has everything to do with God's purposes. Because this is a story of a life changed under God's grace and through his sovereignty. Because in many ways, this story is emblematic of the big story. And it's also emblematic of your story and of mine. If you are a follower of Jesus, because this story is ultimately a story of sin and redemption. Sin and redemption. In fact, that is my outline. Quite simply, sin and redemption. But let's look first at sin. I want to say four things about sin from this passage. And the first thing about sin that we see in this passage is that sin, there's a drifting to it. Okay, let me give a recap if you were not here last week or don't know the story. Last week was Genesis, we're in Genesis 38, so last week was Genesis 37. Genesis 37 is awful in its own way. Uh, these, there's 12 brothers and they conspire, 11 of them do, actually 10 of them do, to kill one of their youngest brothers, Joseph. It's an awkward attempted killing of Joseph, their younger brother. And then when they don't kill him, they actually decide to sell him into slavery. So they sell their brother into slavery and then they lie about it to their father. That is what happened immediately before. The family is unraveling in Genesis 37. Joseph is now a slave in a faraway country, the youngest brother at this point. Jacob, the father, there's a lot of J's. You've got to kind of pay attention. Joseph, the younger brother, is a slave. Jacob, the father, is inconsolable. Nothing can console him. And then we come to the fourth son, a man named Judah. Our passage this morning, look with me, chapter 38, verse 1. And then Judah, the fourth son, it says he went down from his brothers. And he turned aside to a certain Adalmite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So here's what Judah's done. He has moved away from his family, from his brothers. He has befriended, become best friends with a non-follower of God, a pagan, and he has married a different pagan. And if you know the stories of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac, this is exactly what they feared. They did not want their sons, their daughters to intermarry with these non-God-fearing people. And jo Judah does exactly what they had sought to avoid. But you can understand a little bit of Judah's behavior. He wants a fresh start, okay? He has experienced, he's had a traumatic experience selling his brother into slavery. He's the perpetrator, but nonetheless, it's traumatic. But he also has a dysfunctional family, and he wants a fresh start, so he moves away. And the first thing to notice about this is you can't do that. <laughs> you can't walk away from your story. 
You can't walk away from your family. You absolutely might need to put boundaries up. You might never need to talk to your family again because of some abuse perpetrated against you. That is absolutely true. But you must deal with your past. You must deal with your story. Judah's attempt at a fresh start is a failure from the outset. There's, a, there's an African proverb told to me one by one of my friends who, who lives in Africa. He says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. That is true for all of us in this room. Jesus is in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. There are things about your family past, about your past, that you simply cannot get away with. It must be dealt with. But this whole sequence of sin and ugliness begins when Judah removes himself from the community of God's people. But he's also, he's moving towards pagan relationships in a pagan neighborhood. But it's not just that he leaves his family behind. He leaves the promises of God behind. And I want you to see something about the drifting nature of sin. And that is this. It is 20 years before Judah's rank immorality. It's 20 years before he gives up his widowed daughter-in-law. It's 20 years before he goes in to see a prostitute. Okay, His high-handed sin is 20 years down the road. But the drifting begins here. I want you to, do a little, uh, to, to grasp, grasp hold of this. I want you to imagine a word picture. I want you to imagine that you go out today, which would be a bad idea today in the weather. Uh, but imagine that you were several hundred miles to the south and you took a canoe out. A canoe out on a lake, just a calm, freshwater lake. And you came back into the shore, you brought your canoe back to the dock, and you just got out of the canoe and left it right there. What would it take for that canoe to drift? You to do nothing. All it takes for a canoe to drift, a boat to drift, is to do nothing. And all it takes for sin to take root in your heart, all it takes for sin to gravel your heart, is to do nothing. <laughs> Which leads us to our second point in the progression of sin. Sin does, not just, sin does not just cause us to drift, it also deceives us. Back to our story, verses 3 to 5, Judah has three sons by this woman who is unnamed, incidentally. Verses 6 to 11, he marries his first son off to a woman named Tamar. He does something evil, we don't know what it is, God punishes that son by death. According to custom, the firstborn, when the firstborn has died, uh, the wife is given to the widow is given to the secondborn, a man named Onan. He also does something evil. You can read about it, and is punished with death. So Judah starts to think that this twice widowed woman, who's seen both of his sons die when she when they marry her, he begins to believe that Tamar is cursed. And so in verse eleven, he promises, and I'm using air quotes here. He promises. His third son to Tamar once that boy is grown, and then he sends Tamar away. Judah has no intention, as the text makes clear, verse 11 and 14, he has no intention of giving that third son to Tamar. He thinks she is the problem. Now think about his thinking. This is a man who sold his own brother into slavery. This is a man who has run away from that family. He is plunged into a shotgun wedding. He's running with the wrong crowd. He has ignored his children, not dealt with their evil. And as we will see in a few moments, he's willing to take up with a roadside prostitute. He has done all those things. Yet he is sure that the death of his two sons is Tamar's fault. And when he hears of her promiscuity in a few minutes, he just says that she deserves death. Ian Duguid says this, The level of Judah's self-deception and blindness is both astonishing and frightening. It's astonishing because as outside observers, we can see that he is so clearly in the wrong. 
but it's also frightening because we so naturally do the same thing. Friends, do not underestimate your ability to deceive yourself, to be blind to your own shortcomings. Joseph Conrad, the novelist, said this, no person understands their artful dodges to escape the grim shadows of self-knowledge. You have to assume right now, I have to assume that you are deceiving yourself, that you are not seeing something about yourself. And the way to look for it, besides being in close relationship with other people, is where do you feel, where do you feel entitled? Where do you feel that you, where, where is your anger out of control? And maybe most telling of all, where do you feel sorry for yourself? If you probe a little bit, it's likely... There's a good chance, I should say, that you are being self-deceived. Third thing about sin is that sin dehumanizes others. So it doesn't just drift and deceive, it also dehumanizes. After the death of his wife in verse 12, Judah is on a business trip. He wants a little bit of relief from his grief. He wants a little bit of pleasure. He wants to feel good. Now verse 13 tells us that Tamar hears he's in the area realizes that he has no intention to honor his word about that third son in marriage. Her livelihood is in the balance. So in a gutsy move, she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she, I think it's interesting that she has the sense that Judah is this kind of man. That Judah's character is the kind of man that gives in to this. And so Judah comes down the road. He turns aside to what he thinks is a prostitute because the veil is over her face. And in fact, of course, is Tamar. Uh, he is not able to pay. He has nothing with him to pay. So he asks for a pledge. She asks for a pledge, an IOU, basically. She says, your signet, your cord, and your staff. Now, significantly, those were insignias and symbols of his identity as well as of his authority. Which is to say that in the passion of lust, he gives his driver's license and credit card to a strange woman. And then a few verses later, he sends the lamb back as payment, but the woman is gone. Hoping to avoid embarrassment, he says, verse 23, let her keep the items. Let's just keep, let's not be embarrassed. Let's just shut up about it. But then verse 24, three months later, she starts to show. She is pregnant. And as her pregnancy comes to light, Judah senses, this is my opportunity. This is my chance to be rid of this woman who has killed my sons. This is a chance to be rid of her and to position myself is upstanding and moral. I am fighting for family values. No to immorality in the community. And so he's going to preen about self-righteous. Verse 24, bring her out to be burned. Now Judah is dehumanizing this woman. Not once, but twice. First, he puts a twice-widowed woman away at great risk to her own well-being. But then second, he treats her as an instrument of his own pleasure and relief. I think the veil here is significant, that she puts a veil over herself. He does not recognize her because her face is covered, which is exactly the point. He does not need or want to see her face. He wants to instrumentalize, to objectify this woman. He doesn't want to treat her like a human. Friends, this is the Me Too movement right here. And see how twisted it is. See how twisted is his action because it's not just what he does here and coming inside her and treating her so poorly. is what he does actually robs her 
of her innocence. At some level, he forces her to do what she does by becoming a prostitute. He forces her into this situation. She has to get at some level in the gutter with him. That is not blaming the victim. That is showing how awful and insidious evil is. It robs people of innocence. As Miroslav Volf, the theologian, writes, the practice of evil keeps recreating a world without innocence. Evil generates new evil as evildoers fashion victims in their own ugly image. End quote. Now, there's a lot of corporate application. You can think about war. You can think about abuse of all times, all kinds. You can think about racism and its impact. But don't miss the personal point. Sin veils the humanity of others. It blinds us to their humanity because we want to do what we want to do. It turns other people into an instrument for our good. Think about pornography, objectifying someone, preying on someone else's son or daughter, their brother or their sister. Think about service providers. When we treat service providers as just faceless bots who are doing something for us. Closer to home, think about your own children, grandchildren, the way we overinvest in our children's success. In doing so, we are instrumentalizing them, using them to feel good about ourselves. The nature of sin is to dehumanize. To get ahead of myself, the amazing thing about the ministry of Jesus is he treats every person he comes encounter with as a distinct human being, as a person. But sin is awful, though. It drifts, it deceives, it dehumanizes, and then forth and finally, sin just destroys lives and community. At this point, Judah has failed. He has sold his brother into slavery. He has lied to his dad. He's been an absent father to his evil sons. He has cast off a widowed and endangered daughter-in-law. And then he has taken advantage of a woman who is down on her luck and then righteously called for her death. You see, sin pulls at the thread of community and life. And what it always does in the end is it destroys. Sin destroys. That's why John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, says, Be killing sin or it be killing sin you. It may take 20 years, but sin always destroys. It's always headed to destruction. That's why sin is like the weeds in your garden. The weeds in your garden, they must be cut back regularly or they will overcome everything. But (laughs) that is not the end of this story. This is ultimately not a story as dark as that just was. This is not a story about sin as much as it is a story of the amazing redemption of God. Redemption. Because at this point in the story, Tamar plays the ace up her sleeve. Verse 25, I love this. She goes out and she says, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify who these are. And then it slows down. The signet and the cord and the staff. I, I find myself wishing to see some of our great actors play this Tamar and, and Judah at this moment, what their faces would have looked like. I think like Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, just to see the faces at this moment. It's such a pivotal moment because this bold act of faith from this woman turns a sordid tale of depravity 
into a story of grace, beauty, and redemption. And there's several things about redemption in this story. The first thing about redemption is it always includes confession. Okay, interestingly, verse 14, this transgression, she's at a, when, when, when the little dalliance happens, when the cheap motel, the hourly rate happens, uh, that happens at a place called Enom. Verse 14, you know one translation of Enom? The opening of eyes. And when Judah confesses here in verse 26, what does he say after she presents these things? She says, he, he says something and he does something. He says, she is more righteous than I. And then it says, he did not sleep with her again. His eyes are opened to his sin. This is the pivot point for Judah. It's by what he said, by saying that she's more righteous, and then what he did by no longer sleeping with her. You see, God is breaking Judah down so as to rebuild him. Friends, the only way to learn humility, the only way, is to be confronted with embarrassing, shameful, hurtful things that we do. You see, friends, Jesus is never upset with sinners. He is only upset with people who do not think they are sinners. Confession is good for the soul. Let me say a few things more about confession. First, when it comes to confession, you actually have to say it. And you actually have to say it out loud. You certainly have to say it to God. And you actually need to say it to another person. It may or may not, depending on the circumstances, be the person whom you've sinned against. There's, you need pastoral counsel or a wise friend to help you on that one. But you actually have to say the words out loud. I did this to this person. You have to say it. You can't just think it. And you can't just say it to God. You have to say it to another person so that you feel the ownership of what you have done. You have to say it first. But second, confession is so liberating. You don't have to be crushed by the weight of your sin. You don't have to be crushed. The ver- we, we, I asked for our confession of sin this morning to be Psalm 51. If you know the story behind Psalm 51, which we just said a few minutes ago, that is a story of David, King David, Judah's descendant, by the way, King David's adultery. And what does he say towards the end of that psalm? He says, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Friends, true confession brings life. It brings revival. Some of you heard about what happened down in Kentucky a few weeks ago. This, uh, this renewal of God's spirit at a place called Asbury. Um, I think it's too early to say exactly what happened there. But several decades ago, there was another revival at Asbury College in Kentucky. This was about, I think, 30 or 40 years ago now. And I know for a fact that that revival, you know how it began? It began with people in a room like this standing up and confessing their sins. Saying, I did this, I did this, with no but at the end of it. A man who is my personal, one of my personal heroes in ministry, a man named Skip Ryan. I learned and sat under his preaching for 20 years. But he never had a real big impact on me until he confessed that he was a drug addict. He confessed. And then there was this power that broke forth in his ministry. Friends, confession is the beginning of transformation and change. And that's the first thing about redemption. The second thing about redemption is this. Change is real. (laughs) Change is real. Think about Judah. He enters this story as cold and selfish, selling his brother into slavery, undeserving, but experiencing God's forgiveness, and God begins to change him. (laughs) And as we watch Judah, his heart softens precisely through the experience of his own sin and the exposure of that sin. 
to the point that a bit later in Genesis, we'll get to this in a few weeks, he, is, he comes to, you know, he sold his first brother into slavery, but when it comes to his youngest brother, Benjamin, he is willing to go to prison and die for his brother, his brother Benjamin. He has been changed. And it was through his experience of his own sin and the aftermath that transformed him and made him that man, a different person. And let me tell you where Judah ends up. <laughs> Judah, uh, Genesis 49 tells us that Judah is given the blessing of kinship. Among his descendants are King David and all the kings of Judah. And of course, yes, Jesus the Messiah. Even the modern state of Israel, those are the descendants of Judah. What's left of the Jews are from Judah. And then in Revelation 21, the second, we're in Genesis, the last book in the Bible is Revelation 21. And it says in Revelation 21, 12 that Judah's name is on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where he ends up. He starts here. This victimizing, terrible, dirty old man. And his names end up on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. Redemption is about changed lives. And it's not just Judah, it's also Tamar, of course. She goes from this position of great vulnerability, of damaged goods. But by this bold risk, this, she took the risk of faith, risked her life. And in so doing, she saved the royal family. She saved the royal family. She is the one who is actually loyal to the family. And when you come to the New Testament, the very first book in the New Testament is called Matthew. And guess who the first woman listed in Matthew is? In verse 3 of the New Testament, Tamar. Tamar is listed, the very third verse of the New Testament, because she is the great, 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 how many ever? Grandmother of Jesus himself. Change is real. She is memorialized in the New Testament. But the third thing about redemption, and this is the most important, is that God is great. It's not just that change is real. It's not just the confession is important, but God is great. I actually think that Genesis 38, it's kind of God flexing. He's like, you see this mess? You see these people right here? You see Judah? You see, you see this mess of a situation? It's like he's flexing, like, I can fix that. I can change those people. Which is to say, God can change you and he can change me. Do you Believe that. You do not have to walk around in whatever it is that is weighing you down. Because ultimately, this is actually about a much bigger story. Because what God is also saying is that the Savior, listen to this. You should be offended by what I'm about to say. Jesus, the Savior of the world, is the incestuous offspring of a lying, conniving sinner and a prostitute. Jesus is the offspring of a roadside dalliance. Jesus is the offspring of a cheap motel with hourly rates. You wonder why Jesus spent so much time with prostitutes and sinners. Because he came to redeem them. And he can redeem them and he can redeem you. See, friends, no one is beyond the need of God's redemption and no one is beyond the reach of the redemption that is in Christ. We all need this story. We are these people. And so my hope for our church is that we, look, we're a nice, we're a well-washed group of people, right? We live on the North Shore, like, you know, we got it together. I'm wearing a tie. I'm even wearing Easter colors, right? But that this church, because I got to say, as is, is, is my friend John Hines says, behind these, these hedges, there's a lot of hiding. There's a lot of, we, have the, we live behind walls. We live behind hedges. And there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of things like Genesis 38 happening. You know what? So let's open wide our doors to the gritty, to the broken to the alcoholic, to the addict, to the adulterer, to the moralist, to the self-righteous. 
Let's open our doors wide so that redemption may come in. And it begins, friends, with you and with me. I don't know what it looks like for us to confess our sins like what happened at Asbury. I don't know. I know it probably begins, it probably begins with me. I know that much. But let's confess our sins and experience the redemption that is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ who took a mess like this and created the beauty of this story and of all, all time. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for being realistic with us and showing us stories that are just ugly and nasty in so many ways. Because these are the very stories like ours that you delight to redeem. God, would you bring redemption to us, revival, for Christ's sake. Amen.